Now, the Passion Week refers to the seven days in the life of Christ leading up to his crucifixion and then his glorious resurrection. Now, these days, this week, as I mentioned this morning, should not really be called the last or final days of Christ on earth. For as you well know, he lived and ministered to his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. But nonetheless, many significant events occurred during this week, which climaxed in his crucifixion. And we want to walk through that this evening. On the Sunday prior to his death, he made what is now called his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the event that has been celebrated by the Christian church today around the world. This was perhaps one of the most momentous occasions in the life of Christ, especially as far as the Jewish people were concerned. Now, as you read the scriptures, the gospel carefully, you'll find that Jesus waited in Bethany for the exact time to make his entrance and to present himself to the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, as their Messiah, their promised king. Now, why did he do this? Why did he purposely wait outside of Jerusalem in Bethany before entering? I believe there are two, two reasons. There are several others, but two major reasons. First, it is said that that was the exact time that the lamb was being sacrificed for the upcoming Passover, if not sacrifice, being selected. We know that that lamb was the lamb that pointed to Jesus Christ as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus waited for that precise time. So when he walked through the gates of Jerusalem, presenting himself as the Messiah, he was also presenting himself as the Lamb of God. But second, this is also because it was the exact time predicted by Daniel in his prophecy in Daniel 9 verses 24 through 17 that he would present himself as the king of the Jewish nation. Now without going into a long complex explanation of this, many scholars have calculated what they believe to be the exact date in which Jesus Christ walked through that gate. And they said it is March the 30th in the year 33. That's their calculation. March the 30th, 33 AD, Jesus walked through the gate. Some even give you the exact time that he did it, if it coincided either with the choosing of the lamb or the sacrifice of the lamb itself. So this was a momentous occasion. In fact, we could say this was a historical occasion, a history-changing event when Jesus walked through that gate. He also entered into the into Jerusalem in the exact manner Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. Zechariah says that he would come riding on a colt, 
the male foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9.8. And so on this momentous occasion, Jesus presents himself both as the final Passover lamb and the Messiah, King of the Jews, all at the same time and all in keeping with prophecy written hundreds of years before the event. However, he was officially rejected from both perspectives. He was rejected as the lamb and he was rejected as the king of Israel. And so really for Jesus Christ, this was no triumphal entry at all. This in fact was probably the moment of his greatest rejection in his, entire, in his entire life. So really to call it the triumphant entry is a misnomer. This was one of the most disappointing times in the life of Jesus Christ when he went into Jerusalem. That's the day we celebrate. Now of course Jesus knew that this would happen. He knew this would not be a triumphant entry even before he reached Jerusalem. You remember the scriptures and we're going to be looking at it in a moment. As he came into view, as Jerusalem came into view, he burst into tears. The two times in the scripture says that Jesus wept, not just once. Jesus wept first where? At the grave of Lazarus, but he wept over Jerusalem. And he said these momentous words on that first Palm Sunday, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had recognized the day of your visitation, but now your city is left unto you desolate. Jesus knew he would be rejected before he entered. Let's look at this script, this uh, uh, video to give you some idea of what happened. If only on this your day you had known the path for peace, but you have failed to see it. The days will come when your enemies build ramparts to surround you and hem you in, pressing hard from every side. And within these walls they will destroy you, you and your children. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The fact that Jesus rode on a donkey portrayed him as a warrior king coming in peace rather than a warrior king coming to do battle. You see, the Jews were expecting a warrior king to do battle against the enemies. They were expecting the Messiah to come riding on a white charger as were, in spite of what Zechariah said that he would come riding on a donkey. It's amazing how we could misrepresent and misinterpret God's word because of our own desires. That's exactly what they did. And when he came in, of course, they were singing Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Now, Hosanna means save us or save. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. And so the Palm Sunday crowd in Jerusalem falsely assumed that Jesus would be bringing political liberation. 
They were saying, save us, save us, save us. And they thought that Jesus would come to do that. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Remember, this is the first Palm Sunday. That was an important event. But another significant event happened on that first Palm Sunday as well. Mary anointed him at that same time. Let's look at this video. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, you do not always have me. Now, 
Jesus confirms the rejection of the nation of Israel the following day, Monday. All of those events we saw happened on the first Palm Sunday. On the Monday following that Sunday, Jesus reaffirms the rejection of Israel as, as he being their king. As he returned to Jerusalem from Bethany, along the way he cursed a fig tree. A fig tree that should have been bearing fruit, but it did not. By the next day, that we'll talk about in just a few minutes, which is Tuesday, it had withered, withered and died. That was a picture of Israel's being set apart by God because of their unbelief and because of their rejection of him, because of their disobedience to the word of God. It's a beautiful picture of that. Now, this was a far-reaching event here. The Jewish people who they should, who should have known that Jesus was the Messiah neglected to receive him as their, Messiah, as their Messiah when he formally presented himself to them as a nation. And that's why Jesus said they had missed their day of salvation. And I trust that you would not make the same mistake if you have not yet received Jesus Christ as Savior. 2,011 years later, you could make the same mistake and miss the day of your salvation if you are here without Christ and leave without doing so. So I would encourage you, don't let this day go down in your history as the greatest rejection you ever made in your life by refusing to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. So on the Monday then, which should be tomorrow in our celebration, the Passover week, Jesus also ran into the money changes. In fact, he didn't run into them. He ran them out of the temple. This is the second time he has done this. He did it three years earlier at the beginning of his ministry. He does it now at the close of his ministry. This is a powerful message. Because you see, it wasn't just the fact that Jesus hated what they were doing from a commercial point of view. But the bottom line was they were preventing people from worshiping God freely. That was it. They were charging to worship God. That was the main concern. And he did it at the beginning of his, as, of his uh, ministry. He did it at the close of his ministry to show the importance of God's people being free to worship him without hindrance. No one should be paid to have access to God or to worship him, nor should anyone ever think that they should be able to do so. No one. And so on this day, 2011 years ago, more or less, Jesus was an angry man. Jesus was an angry man. He was angry that men would dare to put their own greed for money and self-advancement before the worship of God, and in fact, using the occasion of worship to do so. Jesus was angry. He was mad about that, and he still is. He still is. 
he's still angry about men, women who try to make money from the ministry. Putting a tag on worshiping God, on coming near to God. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus were to visit our church today, would he be angry? What do you think? Very. Right. His authority is challenged by all of his enemies. The chief priests and elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they all come at him at the same time. These people who are enemies to one another all combine to come at Jesus Christ, a common enemy. But the gospel tells us that he routes all of them. He authenticates his authority. He denounces them. And seven times he says, Whoa, you hypocrites, you white vipers, and so on. And whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus condemns these hypocrites more than any other religious leader has ever done in Scripture. Hypocrisy is one of the sins that Jesus really hates. Yes, he hates divorce, but he hates hypocrisy too. He hates lying, but he hates hypocrisy as well. Jesus confronts his enemies and he deals with them with authority. But let's look at the day, Tuesday, from the beginning. Mark 11 begins the day by telling us what happened to the fig tree Jesus had cursed on the day before and provides the occasion for Jesus to give a lesson on faith and forgiveness. This is what it says now in Mark eleven twenty. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw, this is Tuesday morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. See, many times we read this story and we overlook the message that is being taught. All we see is the fig tree. But Jesus was teaching a lesson. Here it is. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted you. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Two important truths. Faith in God and the need for believers to forgive one another. Now in context, Jesus is saying that the reason why Israel as a nation was finally laid aside by God was their lack of faith in him which in practice led to their disobedience and rebellion. The withered fig tree is a symbol of the consequences of their action. That's a powerful lesson for us even today. But he goes on. 
Not only does he talk about faith and believing God and what he says, but he teaches about our need to forgive one another. He teaches that we must have a forgiving spirit and attitude toward those who are members of the family of God. In fact, Jesus says our fellowship with the Father depends upon our fellowship with his children. Do you understand that? In other words, this lesson has to do with family fellowship, not with being born into the family. He isn't saying that in order for God to forgive you as a sinner to be saved, you've got to forgive somebody. He isn't saying that. He's talking to those who are in the family. We need to forgive one another if we expect forgiveness from the Father. This has to do with family fellowship then. Ongoing fellowship with the Father is tied to our ongoing fellowship with our brothers and sisters. This is a powerful lesson. And Jesus teaches it in the last week of his ministry on earth. He teaches the need of faith in his word. He needed, teaches the importance of forgiving. Have you got that from the Passion Week? He's speaking to us today as well. Jesus then begins an entire day of confrontation and controversy with the Jewish religious leaders, as I said. The first challenge of his authority as a teacher comes from the Sanhedrin. He routes them in the attempt by causing them to lose face when they refuse to answer his rebuttal question concerning the source of John the Baptist's authority. If you want to see Jesus Christ dealing with people who like to argue for arguing's sake, read this. He humiliates them. He shames them before everybody. He does. The Pharisees and Herodians, usually at war with one another, join forces in the second attack of that day. They come at him concerning paying taxes to Caesar and God, hoping to get the Roman, Romans angry at Jesus Christ. Again, he embarrasses them publicly by showing his superior knowledge and spiritual authority, leaving them speechless. The Bible says they couldn't say a word. Now, I don't know if we have too many students. Well, I mean, people who are still in school. So I hope you're all students of the Bible. But if you are going to um, do anything with debating, you should study the uh, conversations of Christ with other people. Jesus was a master debater. He knew how to set up his people to knock them down. He knew how to set them up to build them up as well. But if you really want to learn how to handle different questions in a debating, in a confrontational situation, read the speeches of Jesus Christ and the times that he confronted his enemies as well. But he does the same things with the Sadducees. They try to entrap him with a question concerning the resurrection, remember that. And we don't have time to go through all of these. I wish we did to see how he did this. These people, some of these were actual lawyers. These people were intelligent people. And Jesus made them look like dummies. He also challenged, was challenged by a lawyer. One who was skilled in the law. And Jesus also defeats him. He wins the case, as it were. He does the same thing with regard to questions concerning David's relationship to Messiah. They came at him 
again and again and again and again. That's why I see Jesus as being the first Christian apologist. He was the first one who was ready to give an answer for the hope that was in him. And he did it well. Many Christians today still can't do it. Some of these questions that these people ask, if they ask us, we'd be right, we'd be right down. But Jesus answered them, we should be able to do so as well. And so the entire day, Tuesday of the Passion Week, was taken up with these kinds of challenges against the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. Read it. You'll see that, that the entire day, Jesus was confronted with this kind of a thing. But Jesus was victorious. He was triumphant over all of his attackers. In fact, this was the day in which his divine authority as a teacher from God was clearly established and validated. On Tuesday of the Passion Week, Jesus proved himself to be a teacher of teachers, a man who taught with authority. Tuesday was the time that he established this. He ends his day, Tuesday, against his adversaries with a, with a, with a scolding six-fold woe. Six times again, he, he denounces against the scribes and Pharisees calling them hypocrites and leaders of the blind. And in Matthew 23, 33, he says, you serpents. Here's our meek and mild Jesus Christ. You snakes, you offspring of vipers. How shall you escape hell? Does that sound like Jesus Christ? It better sound like him, because that's him. That's him speaking against hypocrites. He's not here attacking adulterers or fornicators or prostitutes or liars. He's not attacking these people. No, who's he attacking? Religious hypocrites. People who say they are the children of God, but they're living like the children of the devil. Jesus was an angry man on that Tuesday, angry against these sins, and he's still angry at them. On Wednesday, he rests in Bethany. There's nothing said in Scripture on Wednesday and the last week in the life of Jesus Christ. Nothing. I guess he was so worn out and tired and fighting these hypocrites, he just had to relax. But he rested on Wednesday. There's nothing said about him on Wednesday at all. But then on Thursday evening now, which is the Jewish Friday, we start to have more information given to us concerning the Passion Week. The scripture says, when the hour had come, what hour? The hour to eat the Passover, the last Passover with his disciples. He reaches out to Judas one final time. He's reaching out to Judas all the while, by the way. There are indications of that. But when, Jesus, when Judas refuses his overtures to him again, Jesus identifies him as the betrayer in John 13. This is during the Passover meal. After Judas leaves, Jesus institutes what we call the last, I'm sorry, yeah, what we call the Lord's Supper. During this time, he did a lot of teaching, a lot of teaching. 
instructs them concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit, instructs them concerning the Comforter who will be with them forever and prays what we is now what is the true Lord's Prayer that we have recorded in John 7. All that is done here at this time around the last Passover. Let's take a look at this video. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another.
just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, it's things like this that cause me to come up with the crazy ideas that, hey, I don't like head tables. I don't like people to pick out other people and put them before others if we're serving Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus taught when he talked about the servant who's done everything and he did it well. He says, why should you come looking for a bonus? That's what you were paid to do. Hmm. But isn't it amazing how we think if we do something that we paid for just because we did it well, we should get a bonus for doing it well? as though we should not do what we paid for well. Isn't it amazing? Jesus taught some important lessons. But remember what he says here. He doesn't say, blessed are those who know these lessons. What does he say? Blessed are they who do them. See? After this, of course, the Lord's Supper is instituted because all of this happens around the Lord's Supper. But then he crosses the brook Kidron and he enters the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he agonizes in prayer before the Father in anticipation of being separated from him as he suffers for the sins of the world. This is a special place for Jesus Christ. Scriptures indicates that this seems to have been a little hide out for him as it were. This is where he went for his quiet time, if you want. And he goes there now. And so alone, he struggles in agony, earnestly and desperately requesting with tears and strong crying. It's amazing to see how many times in Scripture Jesus is said to cry. Many times we like just to quote that one verse, Jesus wept. But Jesus cried again and again and again. He cries and he weeps here. From a psychological point of view, for those of us who study psychology, this is one of the most powerful passages of scripture that describes the personality of Jesus Christ. He cries with tears, strong crying. He's praying, Lord, Rather, Father, if possible, please devise a means other than the cross to save mankind. That's the bottom line. The weight of the cross is starting to be impressed upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He's starting to feel, as it were, in his mind, your sin and my sin. Three times he asks for God to find another way, the Father to find another avenue. And three times the silent heavens gave the Father's answer. There's no other way. And then the matter is settled once and for all. Tranquility pervades the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. Not my will but thine be done. 
And you know, folks, these are the words that he wants to hear from us in our life. Not my will, but thine be done. That's his response to the silence of heaven. And then he goes out to face the awe for which he had come into the world. He goes out to face the awe to drink the cup for which he came into the world to drink. This is the time now that Judas comes and he betrays him with a kiss. Do you get that? Betrayed with a kiss. You expect a kiss from a friend, one who loves you. The Old Testament talks about being wounded where? In the whole house of my friends. Judas comes and he kisses him to betray the Son of God. His disciples desert him. He is alone to face his enemies. And this is what he says to them. His enemies. This is your hour. And the hour of the power of darkness. Do you get that? Do you get that? Jesus was fully aware of what was about to happen. This wasn't just a little skirmish. This had to do with spiritual forces. This is your hour. In other words, you won this round. That's something for Jesus to say. Hey, This is your round. This is the hour of the power of darkness. You've won this inning. But I think Jesus is thinking in the back of his mind. But I still have to come up to bat once more. The time now is Friday morning. Still before dawn. Still dark. He faces an informal religious trial before the ex-high priest Ananias. That's awful, that terrible man. And now he's physically beaten, accosted for the first time. A palace guard punches him in the face. He's then taken before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and given a formal but illegal trial. Why? Because it's in the wrong place and the wrong time and it's still before dawn on Friday and you don't do things like that at that time and in this place. They had already determined the outcome and the sentence prior to the trial. Remember as they used to say in the old western movies, they wanted to give him, give him a fair trial before hanging him. But Jesus' trial was not fair. Far from it. It was a mockery of both Roman and Jewish law. Jesus is falsely accused of blasphemy by the Jews. This is an important charge for the Jewish people from a religious point of view. They couldn't get him on other charges. At this point, violence against Jesus is dramatically increased. Some spit in his face. Some punch him in the body. Others slap him in the face. Others pluck the beard from his chin. 
he begins to be mocked by his captors. If you are the Messiah, tell us who struck you. The dawn begins to come. Peter denies at that time that he knows Jesus Christ. The determined Jews then take Jesus back from the house of Caiaphas where the charge of blasphemy is officially confirmed by the 70 members of the Sanhedrins. The judges themselves become the witnesses. Isn't that amazing? But their judgment does not carry the death sentence under the Roman law to which they were bound. So they must take it now before Pilate. They could not carry out the sentence that they were determined to carry out. It is at this time that Judas, in remorse, commits suicide and gives the first of ten declarations of Jesus' innocence given during this momentous day in his life we call Good Friday. Judas says in Matthew 27, verse 4, I have betrayed innocent blood. The civil trial before Pilate takes place around 6.30 a.m. on Friday, the Friday we now call Good Friday. Pilate examines him on the basis of treason. And for the first time, Pilate personally declares Jesus as an innocent person. He says, I find no crime in him. This is the second time Jesus is declared innocent on this First Good Friday, Pilate says, I find no, no crime in him. Pilate, wishing to dissociate himself from the situation altogether, sends Jesus before Herod, the Tekra in charge of Galilee, Jesus' hometown, sends him to Herod. But Herod also finds Jesus not guilty and declares him an innocent man. This is the third time that Jesus is declared innocent on the first Good Friday. Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. It is now about 8 a.m. on the first Good Friday. Pilate personally declares Jesus innocent for the second and third time in Luke 23, chapter, chapter uh, verse 14. And so this makes five times in all during the ordeal so far that Jesus is declared to be an innocent man. Then Pilate's wife also declares Jesus innocent, making it six times. Pilate then scourges Jesus and attempts to free him by offering Barabbas to be crucified. Jesus is scourged 40 times, minus one, with steel-tipped leather tongs, and a crown of thorns is pushed viciously and violently upon his temple and his brow. Jesus is mocked and is beaten by the soldiers and then bleeding and barely conscious. And you have to remember this. Jesus was a bloody mass at this time. And barely conscious. Pilate presents him to the frenzied crowd and he says, Echo homo, behold the man. 
And for the fourth time, Pilate personally declares that Jesus is innocent. I find no crime in him, he shouts. This is the seventh time in all that he has been declared innocent by someone. When Pilate presents Barabbas to the crowd and asks, Whom shall I release unto you? Egged on by the scribes and the Pharisees, they shout, Barabbas! Barabbas! Pilate asks, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Crucify him! Crucify him! This is the same crowd. So on Palm Sunday, we're shouting, Hallelujah. Hosanna. Save us. Crucify him. Crucify him, they shouted. And then they added the most terrifying, blood-chilling words ever to be spoken, I believe, by a people. They said, his blood be upon our hands and the hands of our children. Did you get the trust of that? His blood be on our hands, and not only on our hands, but the hands of the generations to come. What kind of people could take such a stand? These are hypocrites, religious people who claim to know God. That's who they were. That's why when sometimes people will tell me the things that some Christians do to other Christians. Well, let me put it this way. Some professing Christians do to other professing Christians. They say, how could Christians do that to one another? Well, maybe not Christians at all. Maybe they're hypocrites just like these. Who were then the leaders of the religious world? Pilate, Pilate reluctantly yields to their demands. He symbolically washes his hands of the matter. And for the fifth time, Pilate personally declares the innocence of Jesus. He says, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. This is now the eighth time that Jesus has been declared innocent by someone. Jesus is mocked again and beaten by the soldiers as they lead him away to be crucified, they took him along the Via Doloroso. Simon of Cyrene is forced to help Jesus carry his cross up the hill that led to Golgotha, the place of the skull. It is now just about 9 a.m. on that first Good Friday. Take a look at these slides to see Jesus on his way to Golgotha's hill. Jesus is nailed to the cross and on the cross after being raised. And we won't go through that this evening. We may go through it on Friday. We'll see. But on the cross, Jesus refuses a narcotic-like mixture that would help to deaden the pain that he was experiencing. Jesus did not want to lose, as it were, the taste of death. 
Hebrews says that he want, that he tasted death. He tasted death for all mankind. And he did not want the taste of death to be dulled by a narcotic. He wanted to taste death in all of its fullness. He refused it. Two other times Jesus was declared innocent by those involved in his crucifixions. Once by the thief on the cross who said he has done nothing wrong. And a centurion in charge of the soldiers who crucified Jesus who said surely this was the son of God. Ten times in all Jesus was declared to be an innocent man. And still he was crucified. You say that's incredible. How could they crucify Jesus with so many people declaring his innocence so many times? How could they condemn and crucify him with so much evidence substantiating his, ev his innocence? How could they still bring a guilty verdict against Jesus? Let me ask you something though. Especially those of you or any of you who have not yet accepted Christ as Savior. What is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ? How many times have you said no to him when the gospel is being proclaimed? How many times have you come to the conclusion that Jesus died for you, but yet you rejected him as your savior? Friends, listen. If this is your situation, each and every time you have rejected Christ, you have found him guilty in spite of the evidence. And like the people of Israel, his blood is now on your hands. And perhaps also the hands of your children. What is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ? The writer of the book of Hebrews said that for his hearers to know about Christ as they did and then turn their backs on him was to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. Now if you are here and do not know Christ, is this not what you are doing? When you reject Christ, trampling underfoot his blood, saying it doesn't matter to you? You have to answer the question, did he die for you or not? If you say that he did and you reject him, you are still saying what those people said, crucify him, crucify him, away with him, his blood. On my hands and the hands of my children. Paul said that the gospel was like an aroma of death to some and an aroma of life to others. In other words, it is death to those who reject Christ and is life to those who accept Him. Do you see how important it is to preach the word accurately? It's an aroma. Of death to some, to life to others. If it's taught erroneously, it's an aroma of death. And so I ask you, what is the gospel to you? What is Christ to you this evening? What is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ?
Will you join the crowd of 2011 years ago during that first Passion Week and say, away with him, away with him? We will not have this man to rule over us? Or will you say, with an open heart, that you believe he died for you, he is your savior, and you will receive him tonight? Now, most of you, if not all of you, know Christ as Savior. But this Passion Week should be one of us, one for us to truly focus again, <coughs> excuse me, on what Jesus experienced for us. That should be a motivation for us to share the gospel with our unsaved family and friends. What is your verdict concerning Jesus Christ? Is he your savior? Do you own him as such? If he is, is he Lord of your life? Do you do what he says? Because he says that when we do what he tells us to do, we are blessed. That's a panorama of the first, um, put it this way, of the Passion Week of our Lord Jesus Christ.